it is important to have things to do or interests outside of work. And of course, you know, with a job like mine, where it, it was in, in a passion, you know, for those of us who are doing things that we're passionate about, which is what you should be doing. Sometimes it's easy to get too, too drawn in and you forget, but it's good to have outside hobbies. It's good to recognize, I think, when you might need a break, when your stress level's getting high, when your burnout level's getting high. So understanding yourself, I think, is and, and what those signs are is really key to managing work-life balance and then understanding what you need to do to relieve stress. For me, it's always been exercise. Even when I was going to the space station, um, I told the ground guy, the ground controller's like, hey, you know, I need to exercise. So I'm going to be rearranging my schedule to the extent that I need to, to make sure I get the exercise in, because that's going to be how I keep my stress level down and I stay in a good, a good place. This is Ricky Roy, and you're listening to the Leadership, Equity, and Wellness Pod. Today's guest is Dr. Sandra Magnus. Dr. Magnus is a former NASA astronaut and an Astronaut Hall of Fame recipient. Her election to the Hall of Fame came a week after she was named to the National Academy of Engineering, one of the highest professional distinctions awarded to an engineer. She's the principal at Astro Planet View, LLC, and has served as the Deputy Director of Engineering in the Office of the Secretary of Defense for the Undersecretary of Research and Engineering, and the former Executive Director of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, the world's largest technical society dedicated to the global aerospace profession. Prior to leading AIAA, Dr. Magnus was a member of the NASA Astronaut Corps for 16 years where she flew to space thrice, and most recently on the last space shuttle flight. Dr. Magnus attended the Missouri University of Science and Technology, graduating in 1986 with a degree in physics and earning a master's degree in electrical engineering in 1990. She received a PhD from the School of Material Science and Engineering at Georgia Tech in 1996. Our recording starts now. Welcome, Dr. Magnus. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for, for inviting me. It's always fun to talk about space stuff. Well, I'd love to jump into our first topic. And what I'm most curious about is the moments before your big astronaut interview. I'm wondering what you were thinking and the mindset that you were embracing. Well, actually, I'm, I'm going to take you back even a little bit before I went down to the interview because the the real moment or the moment when it all became real, you know, the possibility that I may actually get to be an astronaut was when I got a call for the interview, when they called and said, Hey, we want you to come interview. And at that moment, my brain was just, you know, it was actually the first time I think I've ever been hysterical in my whole life. Right. Because it meant when I got the phone call, it meant everything that I needed to do in order to achieve my goal I was successful at that somebody down at Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas thought that I could do the job and they wanted to talk to me about it. You know, at that point, everything was going to be out of my control. Like when you interview for a job anywhere, you, you have no idea what they're looking for. You have, you know, I didn't know if my eyes were going to be good enough. I didn't know. I mean, at that point, it was all out of my control. But the part that was in my control, I was successful at. So I, I mean, I was, I got off 
off the phone and I was jumping and screaming and crying and shouted. I was just completely hysterical. So I kind of approached the interview with the men said, okay, I'm going to go down to Johnson. They want to interview me. Awesome. You know, they, they interview 120 people every year. So I knew it was, you know, you, you get there, you meet these, they had tw 20 people to time down in each interview group. Cause the interview is not just the actual interview is a lot of medical testing too. And I'm looking around at this group of people. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is an amazing group of people. So oh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have them, you know, I'm going to go into the interview and I'm going to make sure they put a face to the paper, you know, because they have a stack of paper about this, this big on that point. And, and that means that next time I'll be in really good shape because they'll know who I am. So I, and I was just, you know, it's really important in any interview to be yourself. And, um, and of course I was nervous, you know, we were all nervous, but it was so exhilarating to meet 19 other people who I shared this dream with that the whole week was, was, was just a lot of fun, but I was kind of going into it like, okay, this is my first round of interviews. I'm going to get my face to the paper. And then two years from now, you know, I'll come back and have a better shot, <laughs> but then I got selected. So it was all good. Wow. That is so incredible. And so in your journey, then living in that dream and then going on your trip to the ISS, I'm curious about the mindset that you embraced in knowing that you would be separated and isolated from society for a little bit. And while this journey was so exciting, I'm curious how you prepared yourself for that. Yeah, you know, it's funny you asked that question because early in COVID, it became a thing to hunt down astronauts and talk to us about our isolated lifestyle. And I was like, we were never really isolated in COVID. You could go outside, you could order pizza, you could go to, I mean, it was, it's funny, but you know, the, the missions that we do, I mean, you're very much in a mission mindset, right? You, whether it's a short shuttle mission or it's a long duration space station mission, you're like, okay, I've got this mission. This mission is going to last 10 days. This mission is going to last six months. In the case of Scott Kelly, this mission is going to last a year. And, and so that's, what's in your head. You don't, and you're very focused on the mission. So the isolation piece, you know, I never really, I mean, I never really felt isolated, you know, because I, I, I had a job to do. I was doing my job. Um, and we have a lot of connectivity on board the space station, even more now than when I was there, you know, 12, 13 years ago, because um, at the time when I was up there, I had email available so I could email with my friends and family on a pretty fluid basis. Um, every weekend we had a video conference with our family as well on Sunday for, you know, however long you wanted it to go. You, and then, um, we have phone, we could make phone calls from space and people loved getting phone calls from space. Like, you know, there was a little bit of a lag on the connection and I'd call somebody and I, 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 they'd pick it up and say hello. And right away I'd say, this is space calling, you know, <laughs> but, um, now they have, you know, Twitter. So now the, the crews on board can engage in social media. And, and that also makes you feel less isolated. But it's it's really um, all about doing the mission. There are hundreds, if not thousands of people on the ground who are counting on you to do your job up there. And, and so you're just very, very focused. And to your training question, we get tons of training. I, mean, I trained for four and a half years before I went on space station, and they've managed to squeeze that time frame down to two, two and a half, but you get extensive training on what you're going to be doing on orbit. I love how the connectivity and the increase in connectivity over the years has 
facilitated that connection to people on the ground even more so. And I believe it's also helped with a little more of that work-life integration. And so I'm curious in between all of your trips and in the process during the trainings, how did you balance the life in between all of this exciting, dream-fulfilling work? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I'm a big proponent of work-life balance. Um, and in any job that you have, you're always going to have moments where you're heads down working intensely, you know, and, and you're going to have moments where you can have a little bit more of a, um, you know, a, a, I don't want to say lazy, but more of a, a, a easier flow to your yes. work style, right? And so that's with any job. With ours, it was the same, it was the same way, right? When when we were, even when we were training though, they, they tried to keep the work-life balance um, well managed because uh, we, you know, work during the day. Occasionally we have to work in the evening in Sims, but the training, training was actually pretty straightforward because it was very scheduled. You know, it was like almost being in school again, because you go in and it's like, okay, from eight to nine, you're going to go learn about Eclis. And from nine to 10, you're going to go do the sim. And from 10 to 12, you're going to have medical training. Then you got 20 minutes for lunch or 30 minutes for lunch. So that was actually very intense. Um, but I think it's important to have, it is important to have things to do or interests outside of work. And of course, you know, with a job like mine, where it, it was in, in a passion, you know, for those of us who are doing things that we're passionate about, which is what you should be doing. Sometimes it's easy to get too, too drawn in and you forget, but it's good to have outside hobbies. It's good to recognize, I think, when you might need a break, when your stress level's getting high, when you're burned levels getting high so understanding yourself I think is and and what those signs are is really key to managing work-life balance and then understanding what you need to do to relieve stress for me it's always been exercise even when I was going to the space station um I told the ground guy the ground controller's like hey you know I need to exercise so I'm going to be rearranging my schedule to the extent that I need to to make sure I get the exercise in because that's going to be how I keep my stress level down and I stay in a good, a good place. So I think you have to figure out for you a, how to recognize when you need that balance and it's out of kilter and then be what you need to do to bring it back into that into proper balance. Absolutely. And I can't imagine anything more motivating than someone like yourself sharing how you advocated for yourself to exercise even up in space and with all these schedules. And I'm sure students who are maybe pushing off a workout or choosing not to take some time outside to spend some extra time on problem sets will find that really inspiring and motivational to make sure they get those steps in and get that movement in. And so with those daily habits or routines, I was curious how the overview effect now shapes your daily life and just how you show up every day after these trips. Yeah. And before I go to the answer to that, just one comment for students as you're trying to understand work-life balance, it really comes down to time management and discipline. If you've got a time management system and you're disciplined about following it, I suspect that you're going to find you have more time for the life balance than you suspect. Because you know that's a skill you're learning while you're while you're in college, especially time management and discipline. But um, to your point about the overview effect, it's it's interesting, you know, anybody who goes to space and whether it's suborbital, because I've talked with several of the 
people who have been able to fly on uh, Blue Origin's New Shepard, and they you know, they go up suborbital, and then basically it's a big ballistic arc. They go up, have four or five minutes, and come down. Um, even that altitude and that change in perception is enough to trip off what is popularly called the overview effect. And and really what it is is a different understanding of our planet. It's a different appreciation of our planet. You know, everybody who's listening to this, we're all living on the planet and we're sitting in our rooms and our chairs and one small, tiny, we're experiencing just one small, tiny aspect of the planet in the environment around us. And, and you realize and you know intellectually that the planet is much bigger and that there are people, you know, halfway around the globe living and working and there are, you know, animals in Africa and there are big rivers. And I mean, you know all this intellectually from your classes. But when you switch some knowledge from intellectual knowledge to experiential knowledge, it really makes a greater impact on your comprehension and understanding of the situation. So when we have an opportunity to go into space and see Earth from space, it really hits you. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is our planet is beautiful. Our planet is fragile. Our planet is, a, for the engineers in the crowd, a closed system which means that every action has a reaction in the system and it's all connected. Oh my gosh, our planet is our spaceship and we're all members of the same crew on the spaceship. You know, and so these things can't help but I mean impact you and it, it changes your view of of how everything is so connected and you understand it internally in a way that your your brain and your academic understanding can't. It's like when you, you know, for students, you know, when you go to a class and you're learning about something and then you go to a, a lab or you're on a student project and you're applying that knowledge, you're like, oh, now I get it. You know, it's the same thing, but much bigger. And so with uh, carrying that feeling and that energy and after these trips, how did you navigate knowing what was next and what was best for you given everything that you knew then and saw what felt most fitting for that next step after this big dream accomplishment yeah that's a that's a that was really difficult right I all my whole life since middle school all I wanted to do was be an astronaut and I was an astronaut for 16 years and now I was reaching you know 16 years into the program, flew on the very last shuttle mission, STS-135. That was after my station mission. And now I'm looking around going, okay, what's my next step? You know, if I stay in the office for another 10 years or so, I was 48 at the time. If I stay in the office for another 10 years or so, I'll probably get to fly again uh, at some point, you know, maybe as a station commander or maybe just as, you know, another long duration crew member. But I'm at the back of the line now because I just flew SDS-135. And so I was mapping out what, what that career path would be. And should I stay in the office and fly one more time? Or should I, you know, maybe go, maybe it's time to go do something else. So I was dealing with this on two levels, right? I was dealing with this strategically and intellectually in the course of how do I want to spend, you know, the rest of my life. But I was also dealing with it emotionally from the viewpoint of, I mean, astronaut is it's who I, it's, it's like internal to me. It's, it's, it's who I am. It's what I feel like space is my second home. It's, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. And, and, you know, why would I, why would I think of not doing it anymore? 
And, and so I had these very two different parts of me at war. And I really had to sit down and think about what it is that makes me happy. What, what challenge, you know, what, what makes me tick? And it's really all about having a challenge. And I had this suspicion that if I waited around in the, you know, hung out in the astronaut office and did technical jobs, which is what we do in between flights, and to the point where I got assigned again, which might take five, six, seven years, and then train for two years and then fly for whatever and come down. I suspected that during that five or six or seven years or whatever it was going to be that I wasn't going to be challenged because the technical jobs that were in front of me were jobs I had already done because we just kind of wrote, it's very flat in the Austin office because we, we get technical jobs and we go fly, we come back, we get technical jobs and you may get different technical jobs over the course of your career. And I had some great ones. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be on a day-to-day basis a little bit unhappy which then will make me crabby and not such a pleasant person to be around if I'm not being challenged. And so I realized that I really, I really need to move on to go do something else. And, and it, it, you know, so intellectually, it made a lot of sense. Emotionally, it took me quite a while to, to come around to the fact that, okay, it's, you know, you got to let it go. Absolutely. And what you shared about wanting to pursue something challenging rings so true for me and so many of the peers that I've met and I'm sure so many students that you've mentored in them seeking something that is both challenging and meaningful. And so with that cycle, as you mentioned, between doing the technical jobs and then flying, I'm sure you've held innumerable amount of leadership positions through those 16 years. And even so now, after uh, that dream and that journey, you lead so many things. And so I'm curious about the ways in which the overview effect and the learnings that you've had through it have now shaped your leadership style. And maybe those things are decoupled. Maybe you already had um, a leadership style that was developing outside of the overview effect and what you've learned from that. But I'm wondering if you could shed some light on that. Yeah, you know, I mean, leadership styles develop as you develop as a professional, right? Because you get put in different situations. You see, you learn a lot from supervisors and peers. Some, some is, some are things that you want to emulate. Some are things like, I don't want to be that guy, you know? So, so you're learning all along. Now, what was interesting about the astronaut office, which is really um, unique, is that it was a very flat structure, right? So, like I mentioned before, when we get assigned to flights, we're off and we're training and we're flying and we're, we're doing all that. And then we have technical jobs if we don't. So we're moving, we're constantly moving in and out of assignments as we come in, in and out of flight assignments. So for example, at one point in my career at NASA, I was the chief of the branch in the astronaut office that, that interfaced with the space station program on operations and crew issues. And I had several of my peers working in my branch And then I went off to fly. So somebody else had to take over the chief job. And then when I came back from my flight, you know, I was a worker bee in the branch, right? So this this idea of moving in and out of leadership positions in such a flat structure is very unique. Usually in industry, there's like a hierarchy and it's very clear. But what you learn in a structure like that is, is the importance of leadership, but also the importance of followership and also the understanding that no matter what your role is on the team, you can have a leadership position. Uh, you know, there's a difference between a leader and a manager. 
uh, and, and there's different ways to lead, right? And, and so it really opens your aperture on what leadership actually means. So I, I guess if, it's, if you have to say that I have a, have a style, it's very collaborative, because um, the whole point of, of a leader is you want to get the most that you can out of your team. And so how do you do that? You make sure the team is engaged. You're not dictating to the team. You're, I throw questions out. I'm very good at throwing questions out. And all right, you guys, here's the problem. You know, it's also your job as a leader to bound the box, right? You, you can't have all the cats going everywhere else. You guys, okay, here's the box we're in. Here's the problem we're trying to solve. What do you think? And then you have a discussion. Right. And, and the length of the discussion has a lot to do with the bounds of the box and and things. But you want to make sure you, your whole team is engaged and you really have to be careful not to dictate how right off the bat. Right. But also as a leader, you have to be the person who's got the you, if you have the responsibility uh, uh, for the final outcome, you have to make the final decision. Right. Because sometimes people with collaborative leadership styles want to do consensus, you know, they want to have committee consensus on a decision that that's not possible. Somebody has to step in and be the person's like, okay, awesome conversation. We've covered a lot of ground. This is the way we're going to go. Right. And, and you need to have that to get the group moving. And typically what I would do in that situation is like, okay, awesome conversation. Appreciate everybody's input. Here's what we're going to do. And here's why. Because what I find when you explain why that you've made a decision and you're sending a group off in a certain direction, it helps them understand. First of all, it, you know they know they've been listened to. And second, um, they can understand how you're thinking and, how, and, and you know it's like, okay, I, I, basically I've collected all your input, I've processed it, here's what we're gonna do and here's why. And it kind of builds on the group conversation. So those are, those are different styles that I use. And also as the leader, it's your job. I kind of call it the energizer bunny. You have to provide the energy for the group, right? You're getting them all excited about what you're going to do. You've got that vision. You've got that. It's like, all right, you guys, this is why we're going to do this. And, and you really want to excite them because you can't force people, even in the, hier the, the hierarchies, you know, the rigid hierarchies, you cannot force people to participate. You'll just get passive aggressive behavior. And, and so you have to excite people and motivate them to do the things that you're trying to get them to do. So hopefully that answers your question. Absolutely. And I've, in one of your talks, heard you break down the Energizer Bunny before as well. And so it's really exciting to hear about it again. And it sort of reiterated that fact of how much energy makes a difference to driving these teams. And everything that you shared is so valuable to students listening, underrepresented folks listening who have these similar goals, and especially the difference um, that you stated between a leader and a manager, I think is super insightful because I hadn't considered it prior to this conversation. And it's definitely something big that I'm taking away. And in everything that you shared, I'm curious about how you approach change and whether it's still through energizing the group or if there's other things that you add. And this is particularly with respect to these research institutions and um, other industry practices and 
mentoring that you do, how do you advocate for change in these spaces now, given your position and all of these awards and being so widely respected, but sometimes maybe bringing a tougher problem forward that um, hasn't been done before, that you deeply believe has to be done now. I'm curious about how you move forward with change and your approach to that. Yeah, so when I was the executive director of AIAA, change was on the table, and that's what we were having to do, right? And the first the first thing, again, as the leaders, you have to create the vision. It's like, here, we need to change, and we need to change he, to go here, right? What's the destination? But you have to be able to address the why, because, I mean, we, we put this change forth in front of the AIAA community, and we're constantly having to remind people why we were doing it the whole three years we were going through it. Why are we doing this again? Because people, you know, there's a lot of resistance to change. And if you're trying to move up, especially a big organization, it's like, this is why we're doing it. This is why it's great for you. It's not like everything we're doing now is horrible, but the world has changed, you know, and we need to go here. And, 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 and again, that's that energizer piece. Change management is a lot of the energizer piece and getting people excited about what, you, you know, the vision where you're trying to get them to and, and reminding them why it's important and then starting to show a path that people can. So you have to take it out of that amorphous world and start breaking it down into piece parts so people can see the path that they're and how they're in, and engaged in the change. Again, they want, you know, if you're trying to get an organization to change, people want to feel like they have an input into it as well. So you figure out how to do, we did a lot of listening sessions. We had website um, locations where people could provide input. I ran around and talked to a lot of the community to get feedback. I mean, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of energy, but you want, you want to get them engaged. You want to articulate the vision and you want to explain why that's, that's really helpful. That is so incredibly helpful, especially in talking to leaders as young folks and advocating for change, oftentimes there might be resistance or a difference in either communication styles. But what you mentioned about vision building and energizing folks is definitely someone, something that anyone can get behind. And in casting that vision of the future that people are excited about, rather than focusing on the leap that someone has to make there from perhaps something that is more comfortable is so interesting to me because again, I hadn't perceived it in that way. I felt as though in communicating change in certain things, perhaps someone would have to touch on where we are now and maybe why we need to do something differently. But I love that forward focus that you mentioned and you've had so much success in communicating this and this is such valuable advice for students as they move through professionally and in different pursuits thank you so much for that yeah if I can add something real quick as the leader you know you have the idea of where you want the organization to go you may have an idea of the path but if you want your community engaged, they may come up with a different path. And just because it's not your path, you know, that's okay as long as it gets you where you're gonna go in the box that you drew around the problem, right? And and, and if they're engaged in charting the path, they're gonna be much more in, um, 
excited and energetic and proactive about getting you there. So you have to, sometimes as a leader, you have to let go of your preconceived notion about how you're going to get to your goal. Um, and, and in order to engage your, you know, get your community to follow you along. So there's a little bit of a push pull there because, but, but you have to know what your box is. Like if they have a solution that's two years in the future and you have a six month time frame, you know, that's clearly not going to work. Right. But, but to the extent that you can, it's good as the leader to, you know, keep some flexibility in that conversation. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Magnus. So I'd love to shift gears a little bit and ask you about the advice that you would give to your 23 year old self. So a lot of the people who are listening are either in university or in high school, or they're transitioning out of it and they're an early career professional. So I'm curious about the advice that you'd tell 23 year old Dr. Magnus. Yeah. So um, this is the advice I give students now believe in yourself, right? I remember I graduated at 21, went to work and I was the only woman in my group and I'm looking around going, huh, am I smart enough to be here? You know, I had a lot of, it was all brand new. It was all scary. Ooh, working world. You know, do I really know enough to do this? <laughs> so I think it's really easy to doubt yourself regardless of what, what you're, what you're doing, you know, when it's new and it's something you haven't done before, um, which is really going to be your whole life, right? You hopefully are always doing new things in your life. It's always a little bit scary and it can be very intimidating. So I would just encourage all of you to believe in yourself and just work hard. You know, it turn, turns out over the years, the the best people that I have worked with and that I've had work for me were people that I call point and shoot people. I can give them a task. And they'll go off and they'll do the task. And I know that if they run into questions or if they run into problems or if they run into roadblocks, they're going to come back to me and say, hey, you know, this thing wasn't so clear or this new item came up. And what do you think of this? And they come back for help. Right. But but I knew they're going to I know they're going to work hard. I know they're going to put some brain cells on it. I know they're going to be reliable. And I know I can count on them to work in a team environment. You know, that's what's really important. Not that you're a 4.0 student or you have, you know, 17 million equations in your head or, or, you know, whatever, right? It's really all about, can I be a member of a team? Can, you know, do I live up to what I say? Do I have a good work ethic? Do I have a good attitude? That's what makes you successful. And all of you can do that. All of you. So believe in yourself and and be that person and you're, it'll be fine. And as long as you're doing something you're passionate about, something super interesting to you and you're challenging yourself a little bit, it's all gonna be fine. Wow, all of this is so reaffirming to how I'm now trying to show up in meetings or teams where I am the only minority or the person that looks like me in a group of 27 men <laughs> and these all happen to be virtual calls which I think changes how we're all presenting ourselves because it's only um, really shoulders up that we're seeing but everything that you shared will truly make such a difference of how I'll engage in some upcoming meetings I have where I do think I have to 
lead it to make sure we close the loop in the right amount of time. And I will definitely be re-listening to this to make sure I get the encouragement I need. And so if it's all right with you, I'd love to ask you a couple rapid fire questions, but feel free to take a little bit more time if you need to unpack anything further. My first question is, what does wellness mean to you? Wow, there's there's different components of that, right? There's physical, mental, emotional. I think it's really important. I said this earlier, is understanding yourself, right? And it took me a little while to figure myself out, like into my mid-30s even. Um, but having having that good balance, understanding when you're stressed out, understanding what you need not to, to be stressed out. I think I personally think good physical fitness helps with the mental and emotional things. If you have uh, issues, um, you, it's good to have a friend or someone to talk about because when you keep things inside of you, they tend to you just seem like they're bigger problems than maybe they are. But when you share with someone who you can confide in, whether that's a professional or a friend, it really makes a big difference. So that's sort of the mental and emotional piece. But um, it's really, I think, all about understanding yourself and what you need for self-care. Thank you. And so we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious about your definition of an effective leader and what does an effective leader or being one mean to you? Again, asking questions, energizer bunny and making decisions that need to be made that no one else can make. Those are probably the three things that you need to do. Those are really great ESPN highlights. Thank you. So my last question is, what is your current morning and or night routine? And how do you balance back when you've perhaps fallen off track? Uh, well, my routine, it kind of varies from day to day because I'm in um, what I call smorgasbord career mode. So my days are different from day to day, depending on which one of my smorgasbord activities. But usually somewhere in my day is some physical activity, whether that's yoga or walking or swimming or lifting weights or whatever or stretching or you know whatever um i don't watch a lot of tv i prefer to read um my work is varied so i like to cook usually i'll i'll cook one something once a day so it's really those are sort of the elements that make it. i do a lot of travel so there's usually some involvement in going to airports and coming home from airports, but it's really a mix of stuff. But those are the elements I think that are pretty consistent across the days, regardless of whether the, whether some things happen in the morning or the night, you know, it depends upon the schedule. Wow. Thank you so much. And all of this has been so insightful and particularly the emphasis on physical fitness that you've placed because I think with all the other things that you mentioned if we take care of ourselves first and we make that commitment to ourselves everything else seems to fall into place a little bit more and getting that 4.0 seems to be less intimidating because we've built this self-trust in this other area of our life and this discipline so we have more trust in ourselves to achieve the things that we want to do. So across everything that we've talked about, I'm curious if you had anything else to add on any of the topics, any other lingering thoughts? Well, you know, you, you commented on the 4.0. A 4.0 is not helpful if you can't work with people. You know, you, you have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to work with people, no matter what degree you're getting, what profession, what job, any, you know, 
what intellectual capacity you've got to be able to work with people. And, and so putting yourself in environments where you learn those skills is, is a good thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Magnus. I'm so grateful for your time. And this interview has been a dream of mine for a while. And everything that you shared is so meaningful. And I hope that people listening listen to it a few times because I know I've had the immense privilege of being able to sit in a conference room where you've spoken or to have access through Georgia Tech. But there's so many students around the world who would be so excited to go to Georgia Tech or so eager to speak to you. And I'm hoping that your advice in their ears um, helps them get through their current hurdles and in the future as well. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for the invitation. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Leadership Equity and Wellness Pod by Ricky Roy. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please leave me a review and follow me at Ricky Roy on Instagram and at Ricky underscore Roy on TikTok. Thank you so much for spending this time growing with me. Until next time, take care of yourself.